0: Welcome to the Garden Church podcast Well it's good to be uh, back and continue our conversation in what Jesus might have had in mind when he promised us this abundant life John chapter 10 come that you might have life in that more abundantly Jesus is not just talking about longevity, is not just talking about life that goes on and on and on, although, candidly, he is, uh, but he is also and primarily talking about life of a qualitatively different kind, life that has substance and depth and texture and richness, in fact, uh, invites us here in the here and now to begin to experience the life of the age to come, To um, begin to experience even while we are still residents if you will on this this planet the kind of life that we were built for from the beginning right and so as part of a, a way to explore that we have been looking at uh, what it means to be a soul uh, remember we talked about the fact that you have a body but you're not your body you have a spirit but you're not your spirit you are this combination of, of 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 physical and spiritual and the two of those together make you a soul so you don't have a soul first you are a soul on the other side of it we wanted to clarify that you also have a soul that is the operating system that coordinates all the different dimensions of what it means for you to be a soul, physical and spiritual, but also then emotional, social, and intellectual. We've kind of uh, taken those five windows, the windows through which the spirit blows to bring life to the whole. We've taken it and and decided to kind of talk about them uh, kind of one after the other, although it's critical uh, to realize that that's for our convenience. It's not the reality. You can't ultimately, divide the soul into five chunks and talk about it without recognizing that it is really holistic. We have to see the whole package together, um, uh, although it's hard to talk about as a, as a whole. So we talk about that various aspects and elements of it. Um, and of course, in these uh, elements, we wanna talk about then what does it mean to be a steward of the soul that I am. What does it mean to be a caretaker of this soul that God loves? Of this soul that God loves? And to lean into then what it means for me to care well for my, uh, my body? What does it mean to care well for my uh, social relationships? What does it mean to care well for my mind and the gift of my intellectual capacity? What does it mean today then to care and steward my emotions uh, and and how those operate uh, uh, in this uh, whole, whole, whole picture. I should say as well that this is a massive topic and there are way more uh, qualified persons than I to speak to these issues uh, and all we're gonna do today is really kinda scratch the surface of this particular uh, conversation, I would encourage you Uh, perhaps to sign up for uh, the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course that begins at the beginning of next year. I think we're starting in January again. That would be worthwhile as a further development of this. Um, But at the same time, I want to um, uh, invite you into perhaps a conversation, uh, as it were, on on this, and to suggest that uh, you can't be spiritually mature without at the same time being emotionally mature, uh, that there is a, a dynamic that applies to that. Uh, and because this is so dense and so difficult, I'm going to try and synthesize this as best I can to bring it down to some level of, of simplicity as is appropriate for half an hour conversation or so uh, uh, without it becoming simplistic. Uh, so pray for me because it's a, a, a tall order uh, this morning, and I'd appreciate your your uh, focus on that. I have talked about these in other contexts, so if you're one of my students um, here or uh, have heard me talk about this, you can nap during this part uh, and um, that'll be just fine. That may actually be better than listening. He gives to his beloved in their sleep. That's Psalm 5, so there you go. Um, So uh, when we think about the soul, uh, in Genesis chapter two particularly where we see the first iteration of that word. We have an environment that is the, the space in which we are created. And that gives us uh, our first kind of entry point. I'm gonna suggest that the soul, um, the emotional health of the soul, I'm gonna kind of simplify it down into five elements. Two that are core and three that are gifts from God to protect the core. Uh, and the first one of these is what I think of as the environmental or the atmospheric emotion, the emotion in which we are, are, are created uh, to, to live and uh, it will not surprise you uh, that that emotion, that core emotion, that environmental or atmospheric emotion is love. We are built for, we are built in, we are built as the expression of love. And this um, uh, anchors in a text, there are many that I could point to, but I'm gonna look briefly at Acts chapter 17, and uh, we'll pick it up at verse uh, 24. Paul is speaking to uh, a, a public audience in the city of Athens, one of the most cosmopolitan learned cities of the ancient Near East. He's in a public space, an agora, a marketplace wherein he's having these conversations with the various philosophers and students of the, age, uh, of the day. They come together for the purpose of public disputation, public argument, and Paul earns the right to speak, and so, um, among other things, he says this, beginning at verse 24, the God who made the world And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. Remember that as Paul says this, surrounding the place are various temples in which various gods are being worshipped. So Paul is saying the God that I'm declaring to you doesn't live in any of these temples that that have been created or built. In fact, he says, he is not served by human hands as if he actually needed anything. Rather, it is he himself who gives life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him. Perhaps reach out for him and find him because he is not far from any one of us. While I'm, I'm just gonna stop there for a second and and, and invite you to notice something. Paul is, is making a radical statement in that pagan environment that is essential for us in our pagan. Environment, and I'm going to suggest to you that the, the the postmodern age that we live in is really pre-Paganism. Modernism was the anomaly; it was the experiment in can we invent our way out of trouble, and we have discovered the answer is no. Every invention we have brings with it a whole range of unintended consequences that we need new inventions to seek to address that then create more problems than they saw. And what we are seeing is the rise again under the guise of postmodernism, among other things, a resurgence in a metaphysical understanding of the nature of the world. There has got to be more to life than what we can manipulate and manage within our scientific worldview, right? Essentially, however, because it's unbounded, it is now leading to a new paganism. It is precisely that audience to whom Paul is speaking when he says all of these varying gods that you worship under varying titles that you assign to them that help you micromanage your life in ways that bring you comfort in the dark, I'm gonna declare to you that the God I speak of doesn't live in any of these temples you've constructed. In fact, He is as near to you as your breath. He is as close to you as the air that you move through. It is in fact so close to you and so close to... And the reason He does this, the reason He is so close is so that you might seek Him, so that you might find Him. I would suggest to you that God is as close to you as he is to your neighbor and as close to your neighbor as he is to you, even if your neighbor doesn't believe in him or believes alternate things about him. This is essential for us as we move into the modern or postmodern or pre-pagan age, however you want to think about it, that we stop limiting to whom God is available in our language. We had this silly conversation a few uh, years ago about whether uh, persons of other religions pray to the same God. They might not know Him by the same name, but you don't get to pray to a different God. It's the same God. He is as close to the Muslim as He is to you, a disciple of Jesus. How does that feel? Is it possible? Can I just. Now that I've stepped in and I'm going to just keep dancing around in it here for a little bit. <laughs> is it possible that God is bigger and grander and wiser and more beautiful and more loving and more gracious and more merciful than your theology of him? Is it possible that the God you believe in is bigger than your belief about the God you believe in. That's what Paul's saying. He's bigger than any of your ideas about him, no matter how true they are. And is it fair to say that sometimes the true things we believe disable us from believing deeper truths? And so here we are invited into an understanding of God who is near to everyone because everyone, Paul says here, is not far from us. Uh, from, he's not far from any one of us. Why? Because we live and move and have our existence in him. In him. God is not in us. We are in him. The world is not The place where God comes and visits bits and pieces of it, the world itself the atmosphere, the environment itself lives, exists in God if your God's not big enough to encompass the universe, you need to get a new one right, this is what he's inviting us into, it's very challenging for us at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, isn't it to kind of get our heads around this because you can't get your head around it, it's too late, his head's around you His heart's around you, his being is around you. You can never be anywhere but in God's presence. Whether you attend to that or not is up to you because he will never force his presence on you. So we are invited to have that awareness, not just about ourselves but of our neighbors as well. And he says very clearly, as some of your own poets have said, we are his children. We are his offspring. We live and move and have our being in him. Now, hang on to that thought for a minute and then we're gonna move over to First John for a minute. As, 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 as this poet uh, disciple says this, verse four, uh, 16 of uh, 1 John 4, we know then and rely on the love of God for us. Because God is love. Then whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You catch what he's saying? Part A, we live and move and have our existence in God. And what is the nature of the God in whom we live and move and have our existence? But love. Love. So I'm gonna to suggest to you that the first kind of environmental or atmospheric emotion around which we are built is love. And not just love as the space around our ears but love as the space in the mole- between the molecules that form our physical body. That we are built for, we are aligned with, we breathe in the very spirit of God which is the spirit of Love because God is love and we live and move and have our existence in love. This is critical because we have at some point or another used this language sometimes as a means of controlling behavior. God loves you when you're and doesn't love you when you're false, it's not true. Here's the deep truth, God is love. He loves you in the moment of your catastrophic self-destruction Shorthand, sin. He loves you as much there, right in the very moment, as he does when you are hands lifted high in high praise on a Sunday morning at Garden Church. Critical that we get that in straight, because if we don't get that straight, we'll never come out of that darkness. If we don't recognize the love of God for us in that moment, that darkness becomes something we have to hide from this moment of love, do, do you see? So, so that, that idea, that understanding of, of God's love for us, then is our kind of environmental core emotion and it's the sense that God is not only with us, That that God is for us, that God is at work in all of the situations and circumstances of our lives, even uh, for for good. That's what a, a lover does. A lover works for the good of the one whom she loves. A lover works for the benefit of the one whom he loves. So God is at work, Paul's language again, in all things. Why? Because he loves us. Now please notice, this does not mean that all things are good. Uh, We experience hard and difficult things, do we not? But what it says is that in the middle of those hard and difficult things which God did not cause and God did not create, he is nonetheless at work from then on, redeeming, restoring, renewing in love. He didn't make stuff happen, but now that it's happened, it now becomes redeemed through the love of God. Whatever else you think of when you say God is in control, please think that. Because if God is in control means that everything that happens is what God wants to happen, that's clearly false. There are a boatload of things that have happened that God does not want to happen. But now, having happened, he is at work in all of them to redeem them for good. Why? Because He loves us. What else would He do? What else would He do? So He's not in it going in, but He is in it coming out. Does that make sense? This is the nature then of the, of the redemptive character of God's love for us. I think of love then as kind of the, um, the um, uh, Christmas emotion. Christmas is the season in which we celebrate God's coming to be with us, incarnation, which as you study Old Testament theology, you will recognize God has been doing since Genesis chapter 3. Where did we first discover we were lost in the dark? When God came to be with us. And that continues throughout the Old Testament, throughout Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and throughout the children of Israel. Constantly, they built a tent called the Tent of Meeting, why? Because here's where God meets with us. Now the truth is that's more for them than it is for God, right? Uh, When they dedicate a temple, God comes and presences himself with them. All of this to indicate that this is the God who comes. So that when John gets a hold of what is actually happening in the birth of Jesus, he said the word, that word that spoke the universe into being, that word that was with God and is God, That word became flesh and moved into my neighborhood, moved into your neighborhood. The Greek word in behind that is tabernacled with us. That's what love does. Love leans in. Love approaches. Love embraces while maintaining full and complete freedom. That's that first environmental Relationship That God is at work in all things for good and uh, it, that he is with us and for us. So that's the first one. The second one, we get a hint of uh, in, in, in Jesus' language to his disciples where uh, within um, a few hours of his death he says to them in John chapter 15, um, uh, verse 9, uh, my father has loved me and that's how I have loved you. Isn't that amazing? You catch that, by the way? Can I, can I just say, being loved by God, is nothing you can, there's nothing you can do about it. You, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you can't lose it. Of course, so take advantage of it. You might as well. Whether you do or not, He still loves you. This is, this is the point right and Jesus says not only does he love you he loves you the same way he loves me what (laughs) yeah that's how much he loves you now having taken advantage of that Jesus invites us into this reality remain then in my love here's how if you keep my commands you will remain in my love just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love I've told you this, so that your joy, my joy rather, may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Here's my command then, love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus' command, love one another, as we are in alignment with that command, we are in alignment with the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for us. Do you see how this works? And then, when that occurs, we have capacity to receive then this second kind of core emotion, which is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. We are built in an environment of love, and we are empowered. We are given capacity for life by joy. So, joy. And, and by the way, just, just so you, this is not happiness. Happiness tends to be environmental if things go well, if things happen the way that I prefer them to happen, I'm happy and when they don't, I'm not, right? That's not what this is about. Joy is about um, this awareness of God's capacity for me and my life and thus my capacity for me and my life regardless of what happens. Uh, So powerful is joy the writer of Hebrews says that it is what enabled Jesus to endure the cross. So clearly joy isn't about good times had by all. Joy is what enables you to get buried in a cold, dark, dead tomb and know that the final thing about you has not been spoken. Joy is what redeems all of the places of our deaths right that's the nature of joy and Jesus invites us now having gotten into the flow of the love of the Father for him and for us now is to let his joy be in us so that our joy is made complete and and so so joy as the energy or capacity or uh, uh, empowerment for life uh, is rooted in in this uh, awareness that God is ultimately at work in all things for good. No matter how horrific and difficult and challenging my circumstances are, God is going to and is redeeming them. I am going to be okay. It is, in other words, for me, the Easter emotion. So if, if love is the Christmas emotion, incarnation, God is with us, joy is the Easter, Emotion, no matter how black and bleak things are, God has a way of redeeming it. That's, those two emotions are the space in which and they ought to be the permanent ones uh, that, that, that we have this awareness. Uh, here's another way to think about this, if this may be helpful to some of you. Um, uh, it, it, off, the, off the coast here, there are fish in this, in this ocean. And some of them swim at incredible depths, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10,000 feet below sea level. And you know that the pressure at those depths is hundreds of pounds per square inch. And yet those fish swim completely freely at depths that would crush them otherwise. How is it that they do that? And you know the answer. Then in those fish is this uh, organ, this, this this capacity that inflates from the inside to equate to the pressure that they experience from the outside. That's joy. Joy is the ability under pressure, under enormous pressure to conform, to be crushed, to be able to swim completely freely with great joy. That's What's going on? Joy gives you capacity for your life as it is. It sometimes feels like you're going to be crushed, yes? It sometimes feels like we're never going to be able to get out of the dark. No, 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 no. Don't quit. Don't give up. Stay still. He's right there with you, and he will give you in the moment capacity for your life as it is. That's the nature of it. That's the nature of it. So these are the two emotions that we are built for. This this awareness that God is for us, God is working with us, and that everything is going to be okay because God is good. Yeah. And these realities, uh, not circumstantially based, but they're the ones that we bring into our circumstances. So those are the two. Those are the two uh, kind of core emotions. Now three protector emotions magic. I've been watching Penn and Teller way too much lately. Sorry. Forget it. Um, We are in a challenging and difficult world, so it is not surprising that God has given us ways and means of identifying and processing life as it actually happens from within the context of love and joy. The first protector emotion it's not intended to be permanent it's like the red light on the dashboard of your car that signals low fuel or tire pressures out or there's a problem that needs to be dealt with the first of these emotions not intended to be a permanent dwelling place but to signal a problem is anger anger is a gift that god gives us to identify and process boundary violations. Each element of the soul is properly boundary: physical, emotional, right? Uh, and, And sometimes people and circumstances want to violate those boundaries. It's easiest to illustrate with physical. Somebody wants to touch you in a way that's not appropriate for the relationship you have with them. Anger is the gift God gives us to help us identify that boundary violation and if it's life-threatening to respond to it in real time, and if it's not life-threatening to, to recognize that there has been a boundary violation so that love and joy can help us respond rather than react. Do, do you see? So the, we need anger. There are things about, and, 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 the, and the problem, of course, sometimes is that we have been trained out of the gift of anger. Uh, and, and rather than learning how to control it, rather than learning how uh, it, 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 it works in our life, and rather than learning from Jesus how to be angry, Jesus was really good at being angry, right? Uh, and, but not letting his anger drive his reaction. Sometimes letting anger drive his response. But sometimes letting anger signal that there was a boundary violation and choosing, love and joy, not to react at all not to respond at all. Because when you know you're loved, when you know that joy has gives you capacity for your soul, you don't have to respond even to the most egregious of boundary violations unless it would be useful to the glory of the kingdom of God. So, Jesus says, I want you to get so solid in the love of the Father for you. I want you to get so filled up with the capacity of life that joy represents that somebody can slap you on the right cheek shaming you with that insulting attack, a physical and emotional violation of boundary, and you will have it within your capacity to choose in the moment to turn the other cheek as within the range of options that are available in that moment. How many of you are a week or two away from that option being available to you? (laughs) Because sometimes our bodies respond without us even in thinking about it, right? And, 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 and so we, we clearly need some more work and love and joy so that our anger response becomes response rather than reaction, right? And, and the, the gift of anger signals the boundary violation, but it, it, it doesn't, it, it, we're not supposed to live there even though it makes us feel powerful. It consumes an enormous amount of energy to be angry all the time. Can I get a witness? Right? We're not intended to live there. We're intended to live in love and joy with anger signaling the boundary violation, right? The second uh, 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 gift that God gives us is fear. Fear is an emotion that helps us to identify and process threats. Because life is coming at you pretty fast and pretty furious. And and not all of it is beneficial, not all of it is good. There are threats out there. Uh, Probably not nearly as many as the local news would have you believe. But nonetheless, some of them are existential threats, some of them are psychological threats, some of them are ontological threats. They they root at varying levels, yeah? And, And we're not intended to live in fear. We're not intended to hunker down. We're intended to let love and joy choose to respond to fear, real threat, with courage. You can't be courageous if you're not afraid. So sometimes fear comes in uh, and, 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 and we, we retreat, we hunker down, we find a, a, a safe space. And sometimes, candidly, the church has encouraged that. A retreat from the places in which we're afraid, rather than an empowerment with love and joy so that we can stay in the game, be in the world but not of it, with courage, you know? Uh, so, so, so anger signals boundary violations, love and joy helps us respond to that rather than react to it. Uh, fear signals threats approaching, and love and joy enable us to respond to those with courage, not terror. We don't live there, right? Uh, And then the third one is sadness, which is the most powerful of the emotions, uh, or grief, or mourning. And this is to help us identify and process loss. And the reason it's the most powerful of the emotions is because we need to get very, very good at loss. Everything, everything about you is going to change over the course of the next 15 or 25,000 years. You, you do plan on living at least that long, yeah? You are an eternal being with a great future in God's great kingdom. So you need to get good at letting go of stuff because it can't go with you. We need to get good at letting go of uh, sometimes of people sometimes of relationships, sometimes of meaningful things that were significant in the moment but need to be released so that we can move into the new thing that God is doing, right? And, 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 and I'm not, I, I, please notice, I'm not suggesting that they weren't meaningful. That's why we need to grieve. The reason we grieve is because those relationships and that was significant and meaningful. But how else are you going to let them go so you have the capacity for the new? Right, uh, because you're, you, you need to have open hands and open hearts for the new that God is consistently wanting to do. And what love and joy do is enable us to respond to the losses that are inevitable with sadness that is moderated by hope. The realization that I don't live in sadness, I don't live in grief, I need to walk through the valley of the shadow of death so that I can, on the other hand, discover, even in the presence of the enemy of loss, a table spread, a cup poured, and a generous host welcoming me with an anointed head, because I'm gonna live wherever I am in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because goodness and mercy chase after me all the days of my life. So I need to get good at letting go so that I can get good at receiving. Does that make sense? So again, love and joy, environmental and empowering resources, fear, sadness, and anger are the protector emotions that enable us to uh, process life as it comes at us. These get trained in one form or another or mistrained in childhood. Sometimes we are trained in fear as a way of controlling behavior. And instead of being met with with courage, it's, it's met instead with cowering. We're afraid. We become people pleasers as a way of avoiding anybody's dissatisfaction or disappointment with us. We sell our own soul down the river and then we resent it. We are anxious because. Threats real and imagined proliferate. And instead of responding to that threat with courage, we hide. Instead of respond, and, and sadness is the hardest because it makes us feel weak. How many of you have found yourself sometimes sad and it morph into anger? Because anger makes me feel strong, right? Uh, so I need to pay attention. What's going on? What's going on? How do we steward then these emotions? How do we calibrate them to reality so that the degree of emotion is appropriate to the degree, for example, the degree of sadness is appropriate to the degree of loss or the degree of fear requiring courage is appropriate to the degree of the actual threat. Because if we don't calibrate those, we will tend to hyperventilate or completely nullify. Anybody been trained to ignore your emotions? Not helpful, not helpful. God's given them as gifts. You need to learn to manage them, to be stewards of them, to let yourself be loved for no good reason, to learn joy as the capacity and empowerment for your life as it is, and to learn anger, fear, and sadness in ways that are appropriate to deal with the actual life as it happens to you. So Jesus' strategy is unpacked for us briefly in Mark chapter 12, uh, where he says uh, in response to one of the teachers of the law who came and asked him this question, uh, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus' response is, and we talked about this two or three weeks ago, hear this, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God then with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. You catch what he's doing here. Which is the greatest commandment? This one and this one, which one, both. Why? Because they're the same. To love God and to love your neighbor indicates that you are in alignment with the God who is one, who loves your neighbor. Do do, do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is giving us a strategy of alignment in love with capacity for joy. He's inviting us into a single-hearted pursuit of the God. It's another version of his seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make it a single priority to pursue God in love. And all of the other stuff then will find its place in and around your life as necessary. Does, does that make sense? And, and while I'm at it, I should underline that, that this word commandment, which we have, it's an accurate translation of the Greek, but a mistranslation of the words that Peter, I mean, Jesus actually spoke which was in the Aramaic. Uh, when Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment, he is asked by a Jewish scholar who understands commandment to be Torah. Not law, but instruction. Way. So that scribe is asking Jesus, in a nutshell, what's the one takeaway that you could give me for how life actually works best? Does that make sense? And Jesus says, here it is. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. That's the secret sauce. That makes it work. That's the single thing that if you get that right, everything else will find itself in alignment around. So what we do is bring this awareness we, uh, back to center, we, we get that gravitational pull. Remember back in fifth grade? I don't know if, if you still did it back in the day, but we used to have these bar magnets, right? And, and you put a piece of paper on it, and you do the iron filings. Anybody do this in fifth grade, right? You know what I'm talking about? And then you would shake it, and, and, the, and the iron filings would arrange, uh, arrange themselves around that bar magnet in response to the radians. that's what he's saying here this is the radian this is the bar magnet the love of god for you and the love of you for god get this straight and then the iron filings of your life will find arrangement around them in appropriate order that's what he's inviting us into so what do we do Well, we make sure that we are right in the center of the flow of God's love for us. We are aware of it, we lean into it, we take advantage of it, we mark it by virtue of our loving of others, by virtue of our loving God, but really and particularly by cracking open our self-defensive heart and letting God love us for no good reason, right? Then we let joy, Paul says to rejoice, Pull back into the filling station of joy and fill up as often as you can. How do we do that? Because joy is the Easter emotion, the easiest way to rejoice is to go back to that weekend as often as you need to. Sit in the horror of Friday, of the abject and complete loss of everything you thought was important. Sit in the bleakness of that uncertain Saturday when you're not sure if the sun is ever going to come up again, but then sit through to Sunday morning when the sun rises. That's what it means to rejoice, to sit in the depth long enough to discover that the darkness becomes dawn. That if God can raise somebody from the dead, and He can. Imagine what he can do with all of the ways of your death, all of the ways of your brokenness. Do you see what he's up to here? He's inviting us into a whole new reimagining of a world of hope and joy, of love, of shalom, peace. Then bring all of these other emotions and let them be calibrated to the realities of what is happening. How do we do that? I find it helpful with people that I'm walking with and with myself to every once in a while, every couple or three days, to sit and do something called examen. An examination in which we invite the Holy Spirit to help us identify what our emotions are. Anybody else have a hard time at given times putting some language to your emotions? Now you've got at least five words. And of course, I hope you can see how they all ripple out in varying ways to understand what's going on. So identify your emotions. Ask him to help you recognize them. Ask him to help you recognize, are they appropriate to the moment? Or are they over-exaggerated? Did I, did I display anger at a level far, far greater than the actual boundary violation? Right? Have, is, was this a boundary violation that I even needed to respond to? Maybe what's missing is is not an overreaction of anger, but a depth of understanding of love and joy. I want to become so solid in who I am as the beloved of the Father that I can choose, if I want, to be taken advantage of, to be taken for granted, to not be taken seriously, and not take that personally. You see what he's up to here. If Jesus hadn't learned how to do this, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. It was because Jesus let himself be taken advantage of that we sit here this morning. So I want to become like Jesus in these ways. I need uh, to work on that, (laughs) be filled with the spirit. I want to know are my emotions calibrated? Is the loss that I'm experiencing appropriate to the depth of loss that I'm feeling, right? Then I want to regularly restore my soul. I want to pray my emotions. I want to pray my anger. I want to pray my fear, not pray about it. Pray it, offer it up, right? I want to pray my my sadness. Uh, And then I also want to uh, regularly create spaces to restore my soul. You'll notice in Psalm 23 that souls are restored in green pastures and still waters. That's still t- true today. Nature, beauty, art, spacious music, uh, creativity, uh, anchoring back into the places of the universe where, where um, God's creative wonder just pummels you. with. Uh, watch a sunrise, a sunset. Go, go out to Joshua Tree and lie flat on your back in the wonder of God's billion pinpoints of love shining out of the darkness. Sit and learn to laugh again. Some of us take ourselves, and I speak more per- personally to myself than anybody else in this room, we take ourselves way too seriously. It is good to learn how to play again. One of the great gifts of having an 18 month old granddaughter is that she does not take me seriously at all. If I don't bring my play game, she's not interested at all. And she's not interested in coming up to my level to play. I must come down to her level to play. Hello, hello. Did you know that God created whole species of animals to do nothing more than to play? Apparently he knows how to play too. Get in touch with the playful God, right? Uh, then, then, then of course, uh, uh, develop this, this attitude of, that enables you to perceive reality with a non-dualistic, non-judgmental perspective. And while I'm at this and in the final couple minutes here, let me say, especially with emotional health, get help when you need it. If you see that darkness is persisting way longer than the loss you've experienced, if you are dealing with uh, depression that, that lingers on or anxiety that is crippling, right, especially if you have a family history of, of mental illnesses of one kind or another, or if you have per- suffered trauma of one kind or another, get help. It is not shameful for a diabetic to get insulin, nor is it uh, uh, shameful for somebody dealing with varying kinds of mental illnesses to get medication to help get your brain back on your side, to get the serotonin levels back up to where they're supposed to be to actually help you process things, right? And to press into that uh, and, and, and figure out how to be a disciple of Jesus in those environments and spaces. So. Pay attention to the shame, the despair, the hopelessness, the pain avoidance mechanisms, alcohol or drugs or other kinds of addictions. Pay attention to those things and get help when you need it. And then finally and fully, let love increasingly draw you to align with the center of your life found in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit Garden.Church